to the Bad Vibes Club. We are on episode five of our six-part special on Adam Curtis's TV series, Can't Get You Out of My Head. So that means we're on the second to last episode. I had Andrea and Oscar Frankie with me speaking about the themes and stuff that was brought up in the episode. Andrea talks about the Black Audio Film Collective's film Hands With Songs and an interview with John O'Comfort that she saw. We also talk about C. Tai and Guyan's essay on clarity and the seductive power of clarity. We talk about the SA Film Festival that has just been on and we talk about a few of the films in there. I'll put links to them. I'm not sure they're available to view anymore, but I'll put information about them in the show notes. We talk about artists who use subtitles in a careful, considered way. And then we talk again about Black Power, a British story of resistance, which is on the BBC at the moment and is a very different kind of uh, historical documentary. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Can start with the question is does any I watched it yesterday does anyone remember anything about this? Um, <laughs> what do you remember? Ask you start because I've I just watched it so I do remember things. I think Jan Ching properly finished. Like yes, last episode she was put in prison, but this episode she killed herself. So I'm pretty sure that's the end. <laughs> Which is weird because that's like the only thing that stays constant in every episode. There's something about Jan Cheng. Yeah, she has been such an important character. Yeah, like right? Mike Lex died in the second episode. But the, we're getting close to the end. This is the second, you know, the next one we watch will be the last one. So I guess, I guess he'll be wrapping lots of things up. But yeah, no, you're totally right. Jan Cheng, she hanged herself in her prison cell. It's very kind of proud end, I suppose, in a weird way. What else do you remember? Did anything else stri- strike you? I remember something. What? Iraq! Which I, f- oh. I was like, oh, Curtis just got there, finally. This is like his thing. Oh, <laughs> Everything's going to he... be connected now. <laughs> what, what, what makes you say that? I think it's just because I think I only watched one or two Adam Curtis things before and I think both of them had this thing about Iraq and Blair and Bush and ISIS and, you know, this idea, you know, that, that kind of Britain does, has, or like these powers have this influence that create, you know, worse yes. things or something like that. So um, that's something that in my head is associated with Curtis and I was like, oh, maybe all of that is he's again building a completely different story of how you arrive at this point that is kind of central to his thinking. Yeah, in previous stuff, he's talked about the Afghanistan war a lot. He made a whole thing called Bitter Lake, which is about Afghanistan. But um, yeah, I think his his theory was that Al Qaeda Al Qaeda was partly a dream created by. I mean, this is an old you know an old series. Partly the idea that Al Qaeda was just a fiction of the West, which obviously didn't. That is not true. <laughs> I actually talking about fictions. I I noticed. Uh, because I watched it with subtitles, the opening song was all about dreams. And I was like, oh, it's funny. Yeah, he's been using the metaphor of dreaming a lot. And of course, dreaming is a metaphor that appears a lot in pop music, like a lot. You know, it's a very popular metaphor in the sense that it appears in a lot of popular culture. And then it kind of struck me that maybe that's why he's really into this idea of the dream, because it's so loaded with associations from everywhere. So like love, but also control, like putting someone in a dream state, mesmerizing them, all these ideas from like cartoons and from, you know, films and stuff like that. And then it turned out that this whole episode was really focused on that dream metaphor which is obviously why he put this song right at the start in the first place did you guys notice that there was a lot of talk about dreams so the creation of 
uh, the Iraqi kind of tribe power base by mm -hmm. the British colonialists. That was described as a dream of England. And then Cecil Sharp's, yeah, dream of kind of folkloric rural England. And then it kind of appears over and over again. And right at the end, when he introduces OxyContin, there's quite a weird image right at the end where it's almost like a constructed Photoshop image. Maybe it's an advert for OxyContin or something. And it pans from the OxyContin over to some side effects of OxyContin. And it says, may cause uh, nodding symptoms and dreamlike states or something like that and i was like oh right okay so this is like his commanding metaphor is the drug-induced dream or something because wasn't that on the second episode or something when he said you know revolutions ended or something like that now the only the only option that is open is dreaming or yeah exactly yeah i was just wondering what what do you think he's doing with this dream metaphor like what does dreaming mean to you and what do you think it means to to the art to the film I, I didn't really notice the dream metaphor, although now thinking about it, and I, I can't remember the ending scene with the OxyContin either. It was I right at the end. I only remember there's like an ad. It's like the final. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that was it. You think that it's finished and then you didn't finish yeah. you this thing. It was like a I bit of a weird disconnection. That we're always so eager to stop watching it. <laughs> we, ne we never finish it completely. <laughs> Well, Finally, no wonder you're not enjoying it, because if you just watch to the end, you just get that secret <laughs> reveal. <laughs> I think I think there is, I mean, you know, we can go back to the dream stuff, but I think there is something perverse in the way we're watching it, because we're watching it like as though it's a special occasion, watching it once, once a week. But of course, Curtis these days is just one of many... I don't know, yeah, like desktop documentarians or YouTube conspiracy essayists working online. And yeah, I think you're right, Andrea, you mentioned that all the people you knew who had enjoyed it had just watched it in one go. And maybe it is this weird thing where we're watching it like old media, but actually it should be consumed like new media. And I, and I think there'll be something if we were watching it like in a block of like six hours, I guess, yeah. something like that. Uh, because your attention will be different, right? You, you If you're going to watch six hours, then you go to the bath, to the toilet, then you cook some food, then you think about something else and you come back so you wouldn't have the enforced attention that we're trying to mm. give to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and maybe it will, it will be something that kind of passes you by. I don't know. For me, I don't understand how anyone would enjoy watching six hours straight of Adam Curtis. But, but don't you think you would pay less attention and then it would, like, like if we were just playing it as we're doing other stuff i think you just would pay different sort of attention to it so you'd like come in and out maybe you'd take a break but p other people would keep watching like i'd be taking notes like after a few hours i would just have to stop taking notes and all of these things that we can isolate and talk about would just become a big wash to go back to the dream thing i suppose it would become necessarily more dreamlike to just let it all wash over you and then at the end think oh what was that all about which is what happens with a dream right you wake up and you're like what was that all about? Yeah, and you have a lot more uh, agency. So things, I think things that, for example, irritate me a lot wouldn't necessarily irritate me because at the beginning of the irritation, my attention would go somewhere else. And by yeah. the time I've come back, I'll be like, I don't know, maybe he solved it. Maybe he did it in a way that wasn't <laughs> annoying. And then he just moved on. But there's like a concentration of that attention that, yeah, maybe it's the wrong, it's the wrong form of engagement. So sorry, Adam, we're watching it in the wrong way. But yeah, this dream thing I thought was interesting because I think it's been a persistent thing where Adam Curtis reveals 
that things were a dream. It's even one of the things on the Adam Curtis bingo that you can find online, this meme of like Adam Curtis cliches or tropes. This was a dream, I think, is the is the line that has been attributed to him. But what happens is that he wants to oppose this to reality, right? So you have dreams and reality. They're the opposing, that's the binary. But of course, like what actually happens is that behind the dream or when you wake up from the dream, you wake up into another dream. So he's got these two kind of contradictory modes going on, which is that he wants to reveal what is a dream and what isn't a dream. But everything seems to be made out of dreams, right? So like all the fictions are based on other fictions. The yellow peril is invented at the end of the 19th century by English and American writers. But then the paranoia about like Western conspiracies goes back into China. Like there isn't some kind of fixed reality that he can reveal to us. He just reveals more dreams. So the dream metaphor doesn't really mean anything because I don't know, it's like an onion skin, right? You just keep pulling off layers and there's just more onion underneath and it will taste the same. I wonder if the dream then doesn't become another metaphor for Curtis not to have to deal with any sort of rigor or, you know, or, or you know, again, like to take this kind of authorial voice that can connect things and take all these liberties with stuff because it doesn't matter. But at the same time, it matters because, you know, he's a journalist. But at the same time, you know, this is like a dreamlike essay. Like, that. it's another thing that... I'm, it's, this is like a, 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 a biased way of saying it, but is it another way that lets him get away with what he does, in a sense? I just wonder if someone once said to him, snap out of it, Curtis, you're living in a dream world, when he was a kid, and he can't... <laughs> And he can't let go. Like, but seriously, I think that one of the things that I think is true about the world is that fiction is has real effects, right? Like, you don't just point at something and say that's not true, and then it disappears. Like, you point at something and say that's not true, and it reveals the particular power that untruth has, or that fiction has, or that dreams have. And it seems to me that he knows that on one level, but on another level, he just wants to be the person who's not, who never dreams. He just always wants to be the person pointing out that something else is a dream. But if you do that without accepting that, like dreams have a kind of, they have a reality of some kind, then then you're always going to land in the same position of pointing out dreams. Yeah, just kind of pulling the hood off the Scooby-Doo villain, but then it's like another hood underneath and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, there was this really weird moment when he was talking about the opium wars and he's like, uh, he said something about uh, propaganda and the Chinese and he's like, and then the Chinese, you know, came up with this, maybe he uses the word dream actually, about, or like conspiracy, you know, of the British involvement in the opium wars. And I look at Oscar and I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure that is true. Uh, and then and then it takes a while and he's like, oh yeah, and of course it was true, but and, and it's, it's such a weird, interesting way of framing that he has told you for like three minutes that this thing was a dream that yeah. Chinese people invented because they were, I don't know, feeling that they had to blame Britain or something and attribute guilt. And then he's like, oh, but actually it did happen, but it doesn't matter that it did happen because it's still a dream that the Chinese people had, in a sense. And I think those connections between uh, interpretation and, and reality or causality are... Um... That's exactly what I'm saying, is that he's trying to distinguish between conspiracies that have a true basis and conspiracies that have a false basis, even while also making a, the very real and, and meaningful point that conspiracies can still be have conspiratorial intentions even if they're based on truth but because he's got this like weird obsession with the difference between dreams and reality he keeps pointing them out but like it keeps not making sense because yeah that that opium wars thing that becomes a way of creating you know the truth of the opium wars that becomes a brilliant way of creating propaganda for the chinese state once it's been used for propagandist purposes 
it plays out in reality because later on, you know, he claims again that China realizes that if they let the financial Western financial system into China, then it will, you know, when anything goes wrong, Western bankers will try and kind of use it to remove all their money from China and collapse the state kind of thing. So at all levels, it's real, apart from just the weird moment where Curtis has to say it's not real to say that it's a conspiracy. But of course, a conspiracy can be based on reality. I was going to say, I listened to that Tribune. I listened to Politics Theory Other, which is the Tribune magazine podcast. Shall I sum it up? Yes, please. So it's called Hypercurtisization with Owen Hathley, Juliet Jacks and Alberto Toscano. It was fine. It was it made me laugh because if Curtis replicates the exact ideological assumptions of the BBC's archive, then that Tribune podcast replicated the exact ideological assumptions of the Tribune. So not to, uh, this is totally. So what are we doing, Matt? What are we, what are we replicating? (laughs) I I don't know. I guess, I guess we're we're replicating something, but we wouldn't know it, right? That's the ideology. That's the problem. But Juliet Jacks thinks that he misses out all the popular energy of recent years. So Chinese, young Chinese Marxists, uh, Bernie Sanders and Corbyn, of course. So it all comes back to like far left politics in Britain. It's like as though like Curtis's story would be perfect if only if it mentioned like how brilliant Jeremy Corbyn was. That's a, such a reductive reading. It's not at all what she says. And it's a very interesting podcast. But I just thought it was funny to think about this because, yeah, they end up talking about the BBC and anti-Semitism and, you know, like things that are relevant to Tribune readers, things that Tribune readers would want to hear. So it was interesting thinking about that. But I tell you what it was interesting to hear was Owen Hathley saying about Adam Curtis, the only time he's ever been candid about what the BBC wouldn't let him do is that he was interested in making a film about Northern Ireland. And they, I don't know if it was an explicit no or whether it just got kind of mothballed or whatever. But yeah, he wasn't allowed to do that because there's certain bits of um, the BBC archive that if you're going to use them, you just have to talk about the BBC's role in creating that footage and sustaining certain narratives and stuff. But I think that's a, that's an interesting question because I wanted to talk about the, the documentary that is now just came out that is on the BBC about black activism, which is amazing, and, and their relation to the archive. Because one of the things that happened, I mean, they talk about Michael X, which is super interesting, um, in, in comparison, because it's a completely different narrative. You have all these activists and all this scene and all this footage of this time saying, you know, there's all these other people. Like, this guy is not this figure. This guy is the figure that was picked up by the BBC and became the representative of black activism at the time to white people. And I was like, yeah, that makes complete sense to me. And, and they talk about, you know, why, why, why was uh, he filmed in the Caribbean, like, you know, why were those cameras there? Why was the BBC even covering that? Like, there's a, there's a whole discussion. This is very interesting in the archive and what, what is registered and who was registered and stuff. But the other thing they have is they have, uh, uh, from the Michael X story, for example, they have different cuts. So they will have, like, same scenes. So they have, like, this um, young black woman who Curtis uses, uh, and she's, she looks quite sad, and she's saying, uh, you know, Michael X... Uh, I don't know, was just a thief and he did all oh, this yeah. stuff. And they had, but they have that before and after. So they have a much longer cut of her articulating that. And it's so interesting because, you know, she used to work in this organization that he works. So she's giving this context that is specifically talking about administration and management and, you know, his function in that. And he's cutting that and he's making her say that about, you know, this figure in general. And this mm. kind of like, it looks like she's talking about this massive politics again. And the end, you know, the failure of radicalism and the failure of the revolution. Well, she's just saying, 
saying, you know, this guy was in charge and he stole money from the organization and he was yeah. a bad manager. And I, and I thought that was so interesting. It just made me rethink again what he's doing with the archive and with his cuts and how he has no respect for the people in the archive. I, I, I keep thinking about, there's this amazing interview with John McComfra about um, that film about the, the riots. Hans, is it Hands with Songs? Yes. Yeah. So he was having a conversation with some other, uh, I don't remember, it's a really interesting, I can give you the link, but it's a, it's a really interesting debate. And he was saying, when they made that film, The Archive, and they were talking about going into the archive and finding those people that happened to escape and exist into this, these films that were not done for them, right? Someone was filming them to objectify them in a way. And you go to the archive and you find these people and these people kind of talk to you. You can find their smiles and their things and their things they were saying that they, they were saying in the hope that one day someone will hear it. And it's such an interesting way of looking mm. at the archive and the voices and who's there. Well, I think Curtis just goes to find material to support his project. Like there's not, there's not, that's what, I, that's what, for example, like this, this edit of this scene of this young woman make me feel like he has no respect for this person. She was saying something completely different and he just, you know, cut it to make her em embody his take on things. Yeah, I mean, the thing I would say is that, um, and I've, I know I've said this a number of times, is that I don't think he, he thinks, I don't know how he thinks about his approach to history, but I don't think he ever really subverts or goes goes underneath the kind of already existing history it's often quite surface level i think what he does is connect things together in a particular way that's his kind of particular input so i suppose he's just yeah like he's always looking for a quote that just serves him to get to the next thing or to wrap up a story i mean this as we've mentioned a few times this show is so sprawling especially as it gets into the later episodes it loses any kind of tightness of you know, like at one point, <laughs> at one point he goes to Baghdad in 2003 just because there's a nice uh, bit of footage of a sandstorm in Baghdad before the invasion. Then he says four years later and then immediately after that he says 35 years earlier. At first there's this kind of pretense of linearity. So you're like, okay, so he's going to do it linear this time, that's fine. And then later he kind of gives up on that because he just wants to use this bit of footage and you're like, oh, okay, well, so I guess it's footage led. But then like you say, sometimes he'll cut footage really tightly. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? You kind of become essentially untrusting of his use of things, which is not a good position to be in, uh, in regards to a filmmaker. Juliet Jacks, who's written an article that's coming out in the White Review about him, talks about him as doing an intellectual history. So he's not his work is kind of about ideas rather than about the forces of history or something. I thought that was a fair enough thing to say. Yeah, but I don't know, like Will Davies does history of ideas and they're pretty amazing. <laughs> like, I, I finished reading the essay that you were reading on Clarity today. And oh, yeah. And maybe this relates to that, but I feel like it's not a history of ideas. It's like a, it's like a consumable pro thing that passes you by and, and gives you certain feelings. And maybe, yeah, those feelings are feelings of understanding of knowing but they're not the thing um and i think you know when you say he's doing a history of ideas it's implied that there's a history being made there which mm -hmm. i don't think there is yeah i agree on that i think that there's there's movement and there's contiguity things are placed in order i notice he does something that happens 
a bit in how it's made in that he'll put up a bit of footage and then he'll describe it in one way and then he'll change to a slightly different bit of footage that also kind of illustrates the same point and then he'll repeat the same thing but in a different set of words so what you've got is like movement so you've got a cut and you've got a change in what's being said but essentially you've got two bits of you know in a normal situation you might just choose one of those things to illustrate that idea but that repetition what that does is it forms a kind of mini narrative of like okay that that idea is being introduced ah now it's being explained or dealt with in some way and now we can move on but if what's actually happening is that idea is just being presented and then we're moving on and it's the moving on which is that kind of thought terminating heuristic that Nguyen talks about in that clarity essay and if you do that enough the pleasure is purely in moving on so like that becomes quite apparent especially in these later episodes of Curtis where you're whipping through history and you're moving quite quickly between different places and times all over the globe and all throughout the 20th century and the pleasure or whatever it is can only be in the movement it can't really be in connections anymore yeah or explanation I don't know I wonder if people feel it explains something to them still that's the question, isn't it? Because in that essay, Nguyen's point is that you can get kind of malevolent epistemic manipulators, i.e. creators of fake news, who have a particular purpose that they want to achieve, and they will achieve this by making you believe something that's not true. Whereas with Curtis, I suppose that's... that. Maybe you mentioned this early on where you talk about, oh, you know, art students or whatever, like thinking they've got an understanding of 20th century history because they watched Adam Curtis and now they're repeating it back to everyone else. I think it's less that they would think that they understand 20th century history because, in a sense, I don't think any of them will be able to repeat whatever that, you know, thesis, historical thesis is. But I think I think a lot of them will or might take the idea that that, that is what an essay looks like and that's what thinking looks like and that's mm. what you kind of, like, aim Toward. So instead of having, I don't know, I keep asking, you know, I keep like sending stuff for like the SA Film Festival or, you know, Arthur Jaffa or all these people that do, that use, you know, video and archive in like really, well, first of all, in, in a variety of ways, but also in just like really rigorous and interesting ways and that are interesting in knowledge and maybe are a lot more, there's a lot more intent in their relation to emotions, for example, and feelings, yeah. because I don't think, I don't think Curtis is like an evil epistemic manipulator. No, exactly. At, yeah. at all. I think he just does that stuff. I think for me, and I'm talking about myself here in terms of, you know, my knowledge of history is that I don't think I will remember these things, but if someone mentions something on the, if someone mentioned Michael X, for example, and I didn't know anything about else about Michael X, and all I had was, yeah, like the very kind of redu reduced story of Michael X from Adam Curtis. Then that's what would come to mind, right? You're in a conversation, you're trying to grapple around with what you remember of something. And that's your frame of reference, even if you don't remember the exact way it was used in the documentary. Maybe that's not so relevant for Michael X, because I had kind of heard about his story before. But, you know, there's lots of bits of Curtis's, you know, I'm just thinking about the Hong Kong handover to China. I hadn't ever really thought about that because I was alive when, you know, I was a kid when it happened. And I hadn't ever really thought about this idea of Hong Kong being democratic. Now, I think Adam Curtis raises a really interesting point that Britain wanted Hong Kong to be democratic, but under Britain, it had never been democratic. It had been kind of an authoritarian police state, essentially. But that's literally all I know about that now. Before, I didn't know anything. And now I know this one tiny thing that I'm pretty sure Adam Curtis has simplified in some way or turned into some kind of little neat soundbite. 
And now my options are either go out and learn a bit more about that so I'm not just an idiot who repeats something that he's heard in a Curtis documentary or just forget about it. And in 10 years, when someone talks about Hong Kong, I'll be like, oh, well, yeah, of course, this thing. <laughs> and somebody will be like, that is not what happened. That is completely incorrect. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, I don't know where I got that from. But I think that, I think that was one of the things that I mentioned this week was that I would be super interested in like who is the you know do, do the audience of the black activism documentary which again is amazing and everybody should watch it is that BBC sorry Curtis. just to be that's clear. BBC yeah, yeah yeah okay that's interesting does that overlap with the Adam Curtis documentary there's something puzzling about these two objects existing in the BBC you know being financed at the BBC and how they get also promoted written about you know discuss Owen Hadley actually made quite a good point about Curtis's kind of changing style that he used to have quite a lot of interviews that he conducted or someone conducted on behalf of him that he would then edit and use with the footage. But he doesn't do that now. And Owen Hathley points out that actually he, his own, his kind of solo department, he doesn't really have the funding anymore. I think he makes these films with no budget, but no oversight. That's the way the kind of cards have landed for him in terms of, you know, no one cares what he does as long as it doesn't cost very much. Whereas I think... Hathley was saying that his favourite one was the Mayfair set and that that's full of these kind of really rich interviews. And that it might it might still have all these biases and, and kind of blind spots that we're talking about now, but just in terms of like the richness of the material is a kind of different level. There's, there's a different type of knowledge that is produced when you allow people to have a voice and you don't treat them as objects, right? The moment they're there and they can articulate things. And you have different people articulating things from different positions. I think that makes such a big difference. I wonder if that's why the, some of the best footage is, is when things are already treating people like objects. So watching the Chinese kind of opera, ballet stuff is really fun. And, and watching him uh, use film footage from narrative film. There was a, something from like The Quiet American or something in the, in the episode I watched. And it was just like you weren't concerned about how he was using it because it was already people kind of you know playing a part or playing a role or acting as if they were something and he's just using the image that they're intentionally projecting rather than projecting an image on them or something there's a really uh, i mean i think this is gonna come out too late but there's a really good film essay on the film essay festival that is looking at the role of women in chinese cinema just after the revolution and then you know closer to now yeah, how, how the whole historical films are looking at how the role of the women changed, but they kind of like represent that experience very differently. And it kind of like maps the sex worker as kind of like the figure of change, which is, yeah, it's really, really good. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Curtis doesn't, he's not got some particular take on media history. He doesn't just want to look at a certain set of media, like just news footage or just films or something. I think that's, yeah, that's like, We've been watching a lot of these essay film festival and yeah, lots of them are about films, aren't they? They kind of take from films to think about film. And that's kind of an obvious way to work if you're like a single person in front of a computer. But Curtis, I guess, has grander ambitions and used to have grander budgets as well. He mentions the BBC at one point. He's talking about the British leaving Hong Kong. And he says the BBC continued the fantasy of the special virtues of the British Empire. And it's it, and then he lets some footage run and it's like a BBC voiceover saying how much everyone loved the British. <laughs> how they were so fond of the British. And it's Prince Charles like driving away in a car. And all these little kids dressed in red tracksuits like running after him and waving with glow sticks. It's really good. <laughs> so he does mention the BBC, but it's the only time where he kind of even mentions that the BBC have a role in sustaining this fiction of, you know, 
Britain as a world power. I just watched so many uh, film essays this week, and they were really good, so they kind of like occupy that space in my memory. Yeah, I really enjoyed um, my favourite one of the three I watched from the, that monograph series from the SA Film Festival was Irani Bag. I thought that was so amazing. <gasps> amazing. That's yeah. so amazing. Maybe, sh- maybe we should just find out what that's called and give that shout out instead. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to... You have to watch it in the festival. That's the only thing. Yeah, I could. Oh, yeah, it won't be up by the time I put it up. So it's filmed by Mariam Tafakori and it's called Irani Bag. I think it might have been commissioned by the film festival because I think the, you know, the consultant on it was Kevin B. Lee. Yeah. And yeah, it's a film that's made up of Irani cinema and it's all scenes in which two people, a man and often a man and a woman, I think it's just a man, yeah, men and I women think it's touch just the men and women, yeah. Through bags. So the bag becomes this kind of conduit for touch, which would be completely impossible to represent in cinema if it took place physically between two bodies. And the way she uses text on screen, I think is really lovely and really thoughtful. And um, yeah, it's only a short film. I'm, you know, it's got a different level of ambition to Curtis, but it is a, it's really striking to watch something that's like so every single element of it is thought through. There's really nice bits where she'll play two sections of the same scene on screen at the same time but just from just before they touch and just after they touch and there's some really nice kind of ballet that happens in those moments between the text and the image and the uh yeah the kind of bodies on screen what was your favorite one you've watched so far yeah that one i just loved i just sent it to everybody i thought it was just one of the best things i've seen this year i watched the one that is up as about horror film oh yeah uh, in ghost, Indonesia. ghost like us by ria rizaldi yeah that was yeah, I, re- I really love that one to. I watched um, Jenny Brady. Yeah, I watched Wow and Flutter because I'm quite interested in artists that use text on screen. And in that film, she uses um, not quite so. She uses kind of text on screen to uh, to kind of create the character of a speaking bird. That was interesting. But that's more like when I'm thinking in like PhD mode of like, oh, this can like be a good example of something that I can talk about. <laughs> Such a weird way to watch films. But yeah, again, it's it's like a thoughtful use of something. So like. Curtis, like, sometimes uses text on screen. He seems to be using less nowadays. Yeah, I thought that. Like, less kind of uh, big titles on the screen. I feel like he used it quite a lot in the first few episodes. Yeah, I just don't know why, like, Operation Mindfuck, which was in the first episode, (laughs) that got its own, like, little title sequence with this burst of balloons and this brightly coloured text, and nothing else has had that, and you just think, like... Why have you chosen that just for like a, you know, like a kind of medium sized plot element, just having its own title sequence? Sometimes you're just bored, Matt. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I totally understand that. And I think that's that's totally fine. But it, when you watch other films which yeah. use text on screen and they use it in such a thoughtful and like particular way, you do think, oh, so you can do stuff for a reason and that still be good. You don't have to be totally led by intuition and just kind of. I don't know, random decision at all time. But then that's when you think a bit of oversight, like aesthetic oversight over Curtis might be a good thing as well. But it's too late in his career for that, isn't it? It's like, there's no way he'd accept that or be able to work in that way anymore. I was just going to say, all these young artists, just these particular people I'm watching, you know, like Jenny Brady, she's, you know, it's a lot of fun, different funders. There would have been lots of producers that would have been working with her and thinking, oh, you know, why don't you do it in this way? Or have you thought about this? And same with those, um, the... Asian filmmakers who made the films for the monograph series all had Kevin B. Lee as a consultant. So I'm assuming he watched the films and said, hey, that's great. Why don't you try a little bit of this or a little bit of that? And surprisingly enough, that's a useful process to go through. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that we both 
we both look at very different things and, 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 and disagree about a lot of stuff in terms of art, but I think both of us have this relation with our objects, which is that they have to have this coherent mechanism, this thing that makes you believe that that is an object that deserves your attention or something. And it's not about time. It's something magical that happens when everything kind of clicks together. And that d- demands a different relationship of you as a as a audience or uh, public or whatever. And I think Curtis doesn't have that. I think he does in other films, but just not so much in this film. And yeah, I think he's just operating in a very different context in which he's, you know, we're talking about this thing a few episodes ago where you're saying like, oh, he's kind of mourning the loss of whatever the white man's centrality of power and stuff. I think he's mourning his own. He's just not as radical a figure as he was like 10 years ago, like in his world, right? In his world where it's the BBC and loads of lefties down the pub and a load of weirdos who all blog, you know, like cool people who blog around the world and they all email each other with weird clips they found from the archive. Like that world has disappeared because of bigger changes. And he's kind of mourning that world. I don't think he, he's mourning the world of like, I don't know, 50s British empire, but just the world in which he could think of himself as like a radical auteur rather than just one of many people making films about history. Yeah, but I think, but I think that's the kind of this kind of authorship position, right? This kind of hero and that's his history is full of heroes. And it made me laugh. There's a moment where he's like showing, he cuts to Ken, like this old British comedian in the 70s called Ken Dodd who's like a figure of like 70s British weirdness. And then he cuts to It's a Knockout, which is another kind of symbolic weird TV show from 70s Britain. And it strikes me that he's trying to show how like insular and stupid British culture was. But of course, that only is meaningful if you remember that particular insular and weird bit of British culture, i.e. that you're British and your like parents are British and they grew up in the 70s and like watch that stuff. So it's like this closed system where like you only get to laugh at it if you already ex- like have the exact experience that you know I have and Curtis has and stuff. It's quite a weird thing. I did I did watch those things and thought, hmm, I wonder if that makes sense for a British person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a story behind them. <laughs> I I didn't understand any of it. It completely like I I remember it, but I don't get that reference at all. Yeah, that's interesting. That's gonna be that's gonna be the migrant test, Oski. Yeah, they're gonna be like, who's Ken Dodd? <laughs> I mean, Ken, that's the irony is that Ken Dodd, I agree that he's, he's, he does represent a particular time, but he was also quite a strange and subversive character. And I'm sure there's a really brilliant documentary on how strange and odd his life was. And that'd be worth watching. But that use, even you, even the way he uses Ken Dodd is kind of doesn't really fulfill like the potential of Ken Dodd. <laughs> I mean, you do get, a, you do get an example of his politics sometime, you know, like it's simple politics, but. He doesn't like, he does not, I mean, like is such a stupid word to use, but he really, he enumerates the amount of um, foreign governments that the CIA and the American government tried to overthrow in the late 20th century. 66 foreign governments and 26 successful overthrows. Although that he's counting uh, governments, but also there's attempts as well. We found, I mean... We were, we were having fun because we were like, well, if they counted attempts instead, just in Cuba, it would be like... Oh, I see. A thousand... <laughs> like individual attempts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the we, thing. We saw there was a fair, a much more fair statistic to use. No, no, but I think that's a good point because I think it's it's a rare moment where he's 
so annoyed that he re- he resorts to that liberal use of statistics as though he's going to overwhelm you with figures like as though the sheer reality of american imperialism isn't enough and like the revelation of the fact that it happened wasn't enough and he's showing you the footage of the person being like ho 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 yeah we decided to invade all these countries and every time it was an exception and it's like he finally like gets exasperated and he resorts to that liberal thing of like you know what there was actually 66 different foreign governments and it's like well that it's not going to work like we're not going to take this on board i don't know like america isn't going to listen to you and like be like oh yeah maybe we should stop overthrowing foreign governments <laughs> oh it's very hypocritical of us to overthrow foreign governments <laughs> But it's weird because it's the moment where his politics comes out and he, you know, he obviously feels strongly enough about it to like go back through and be like, I'm going to count this. I'm going to count all these. Yeah, maybe there's something about this kind of thing about the dreaming and the unveiling. And um, was it the Opium Wars, Oski? It was, it was something about, oh, and then in the moment in time, people in Britain realized that the Opium Wars had happened or something oh, yeah. like that. And we were like, what do you mean they didn't realize that they have that? Like, because, because I know, you know, from... The fact that Britain was involved in so much, like, colonial history in Latin America and, and no one here knows. I'm like, what did, what did people, what do you mean people here didn't know that, or, or that extent of, and I think maybe the 67, 67 or 60 something uh, countries is an exasperation in that sense that maybe, for me, is, that, is something like really obvious because, you know, we were the countries that were being uh, <laughs> overthrown. <laughs> overthrown. <laughs> Yeah. So it's like, it's like a very, you know, everyday part of history. I was like, oh, Oscar, do you know the Biennale, uh, San Paulo Biennale was set up by the CIA? Now, this is not conspiracy theory. This is like, you know, a, 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 a known fact. Um, but I think there's something that maybe relates to this idea, like his portrayal of Britain or something that, yeah, those things, there's some, so all these things have happened here. Like Britain is involved in all these things. and Yeah, there's probably a lot of, British people who don't know very much about the Opium Wars. I think he he had quite a particular historical point was that I think the elites were coming to terms with what they had done in in the Opium Wars. But the elites never come to terms with anything. But that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> have like, you seen, have you, like just a week of Boris Johnson. It's just like enough to know that. But this is this is his thing, right? He, he's he, this is the dreams reality unveiling thing. It's like he thinks that to come to terms with something, you have to. Ha- you have to have not known it and then realise it. But of course, for like, you know, the, the, I don't know, ruling class or whatever, like it's a constant play between like plausible deniability, things that you know but no one ever mentions, um, like implicit truths and ex- explicit truths. Like it's more about etiquette than it is about truth. And his insistence on like the idea of dreams and unveiling truth and stuff, he's never going to be able to understand decisions made at very high levels because they're not really about like contradiction is not a problem so like you can both know exactly what you're doing and also a hundred years later be very surprised that china for example has quite a low opinion of your country (laughs) or whatever it is you know his exasperation or something is correct like we we aren't taught a lot about british imperialism at school for example or anything about british imperialism at school so it does come as a surprise to us to learn what we've done so maybe he's just He's just kind of projecting his own surprise onto people in the past or something. But yeah, the idea that the people who conducted the Opium Wars didn't know what they were doing when they were doing it is probably just a... It's like a confusing understanding of what was going on. Oscar, have you got a single word to sum up today's episode? No, I don't think so. 
How could we finish the episode then? Well, Telling well, everybody that they should watch the Black Activism documentary. Oh yeah, let's find that. Okay, what's it called? Do you know? Oh, it's called Black Power: A British History of Resistance. Sorry. I mean, I just, I just, I'm, I'm fascinated with um, Black history in Britain because I feel it's so unknown and so, um, and it has, it has taken me quite a long time to start actually learning. Uh, about these things which again is interesting in, in, in relation to you know what we know and we don't know and we live in Camberwell so this is on our doorstep like a lot of the stuff that happens in the documentary happens around here in Brixton and I just make this really nice map of people a lot of people that are in Curtis documentaries like um, who's the guy who comes up with the term black power in the US I forgot his name from the Black Panthers and then the Black Panthers here, and uh, the Black Liberation Front, and the Brixton Women's Group, like all these different groups. And there are a lot of interviews and a lot of people talking about the connections and the complexities and how this, these groups relate to each other and who joins which you know, one or more of these groups and how, um, you know, the thinking and ideologies and, the, and, 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 and also like the things that each one of those groups managed to accomplish. So it's just like a really complex history. Mm. It's like the opposite of that, you know, that five minute explanation of, you know, this thing that happened and ended. And, and, and um, it's looking at, you know, changing infrastructure, changing law, lots of different things that were accomplished by these groups, but also just the fun of being part of this. What did that mean? Um, and also how they ended and like, again, like how different groups ended in different ways and, 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 and people moved on and went on to do different things. It's just incredible to me that uh, black British history is not part of the curriculum. Mm. It shouldn't because I grew up in, you know, in Brazil and Latin America and, uh, and it's not like black Brazilian history is part of the curriculum in yeah. Brazil. So, <laughs> and I guess especially with Michael Gove's curriculum, this makes even more sense. But how you can, you know, how you can teach history with these massive gaps in knowledge, because then how, how do things connect in your brain if there are all these massive holes? Well, it's just Henry VIII, isn't it? That's all of history is just Henry <laughs> yeah, VIII. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Thanks so much to Andrea and Oscar. Just another shout-out for that documentary, Black Power, A British Story of Resistance is on the iPlayer and it can be watched for the rest of the year so no rush to watch it I hope you enjoyed the conversation and I'll see you soon (laughs) 